Welcome to The Lead. I'm your host, Rasha Ilas, and with us today is Dr. Binan Grams, who has a PhD in social history of medicine, disease, and public health in the Middle East from Georgetown University. She joins us today from a studio at Loyola University in New Orleans, where she is an assistant professor of Middle East history. Binan, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so why don't we start by you telling us about your research with uh, the working title of Damascus in the Time of Cholera, which is a really cool title, by the way. How did you become interested in the topic to begin with? That is actually a funny story and a fortunate incident. When I started my research, and this is, by the way, my dissertation topic, my PhD dissertation topic, when I started doing the research, I was not really interested in disease or medicine per se. I started my research on the social and cultural experience of World War I in Damascus. And I was interested in knowing how some aspects of the war shaped and and influenced daily life in the city and in particular hospitals and soldiers you know damascus was a provincial capital and soldiers were uh, shipped back and forth between damascus and other locations where military presence was needed so uh, i went to the archives in in damascus and i started looking into court records for the war years and i noticed that there were a lot of uh, a lot of cases of dead soldiers whose bodies were discharged from a specific hospital in damascus that's called the military hospital in mezze so I started digging into that and tried to locate where that uh, hospital is. But, you know, with the current situation in Damascus, it was quite hard uh, to reach any uh, archives or dig any further into that uh, direction. So uh, I decided to look into other places, other archival material where I can get more information about those dead soldiers and what happened to them and to their families and who they are, because at the end of the day, it's an empire that covered large part of the Middle East and like Syria, greater Syria, Turkey. So I began looking into newspapers from the era and there was a, a, a newspaper that's called the Sharp from Damascus. And I started noticing that they were counting the number of cases and deaths from uh, infectious diseases like cholera, like dysentery, typhus. And this was, this was from which era? From 1914 to 1918. Okay, carry on. So, yeah. so I am still interested in World War I, those four years and what was happening there. But I was so surprised that, wow, there's cholera in Damascus and there are these diseases. And I came across an article in which the the health official in Damascus was reprimanding Damascians for consuming the water from the Barada. And he was in the article, he said... From the Barada, from the Barada River, which goes through the city of Damascus. Exactly. Yeah, he was reprimanding Damascians for not taking precautions and not listening to the government and refrain from drinking from the Barada River. And all these ideas, I did not know, first of all, that Damascians used to drink from Barada directly residents in Damascus now drink from Fiji. 
Ainel Fiji, which is the a water spring about 17 kilometers away from Damascus. I also did not know that the city had cholera. So I started digging. Okay, apparently the disease is familiar. Apparently there is a problem. What happened? And I started going backwards in time. And my research took me all the way to 1848, really. Mm. So instead of covering four years of World War One, I, I found um, myself during almost a century. Okay, well then give us some background on what life was like back then in, with regards to public health in Damascus and, you know, the Ottoman Empire. What was going on? What was it like for people back then? So, you know, in regard to cholera, people did not know cholera before 1819, 1819 in general. The disease is endemic to the Ganges Valley in India. And it is known there, but it did not have its international journey, basically, until the involvement of uh, British imperial forces that took the disease from India to Oman, to the Khalij of Oman, this is in the Persian Gulf. And from there, the disease traveled all the way to Damascus with the trade caravans that were quite active during that time. So it, the disease came to Syria in 1819, 1820, 1821, but did not reach Damascus all the way down to Damascus until 1848. Oh, it, that's interesting. Yeah, people heard of the disease in Damascus. So it is not that Damascians did not hear of cholera mm -hmm. before 1848. They heard of it because it attacked severely the pilgrims in in Mecca and also in Egypt. It already spread to other parts of the Middle East. And obviously it had already come down to modern day Syria in the northern parts in the city of Aleppo and what we call today around the Turkish border and all that. Exactly. It affected Aleppo way before it came down to Damascus. Mm -hmm. And that's probably because Aleppo was on a very active trade route. From yes. India. It is, you know, Aleppo's connection with what is now Iraq and Iran is very strong, was very strong. And they had commercial and cultural, of course, and economic ties that went for centuries. So whatever, whenever diseases break out in what we call between the rivers, Tigris and Euphrates, it reaches Aleppo. And so it sounds as if the disease went hand in hand with trade, and that's not so surprising. It is not surprising at all. Diseases traveled for centuries with uh, trade caravans and with merchants, with pilgrims as well, mm -hmm. and with soldiers. So empires, whether the traditional empires we know of now, like the Ottoman, the Persians, the Chinese, or the modern empires that we know them, the British and the French, all contributed to the spread of multiple diseases, including cholera. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So tell us more about what life was like back then when they first started to hear about cholera in Damascus with a focus on Damascus. Right. It was a shock for everybody. You can imagine it is not that people did not know infectious diseases before. Like Damascians have known plague, the bubonic plague for centuries. They knew of it. 
they had they developed traditions, measures, and ways of thinking about plague and how to behave during the time of plague crisis. Like what you know, people isolated the diseased person, but took care of them. They did not isolate them outside the city and discarded them. They took care of the diseased patients in a sort of quarantine area. Um, it did not have the same meaning. I mean, this is very important thing to point out that quarantine in the meaning that we know of today is actually a European invention. Mm. They did not quarantine people in the same way, but they, by isolating them altogether, right? Contagion was not a concept that was very well established. And that's everywhere around the world. Mm. Um, there were ideas about contagion. So I don't know if you're familiar, but there is a hadith by Prophet Muhammad where he says, if there is a plague in an area, don't go there. And if you are in an area where there is plague, don't leave. Okay. That's something the local Muslim population would adhere to or take advice from. It was always a subject for debate. I can say that because there were also other saying by the prophets in which he questioned the idea of contagion, right? So there was strong debate among Islamic scholars about what it means and how to behave during the time of infectious diseases. However, one thing is for sure that when someone fell ill to plague, that person is not discarded or isolated or left alone. They were attended for. So that is that is one of the ways in which people reacted to plague. Wait, uh, wait, other... so that's sorry to interrupt you, but that's very interesting. The you're saying there was a saying by the prophet that questions the idea of contagion. Right. Okay. So in what way? Just explain that a little more. You know, when plague bl broke out during among the camels, there is a story about one one of the people there said, we have to isolate the sick camel. And then the prophet was reported to have said, well, there is no contagion. And the person said, well, the camel uh, infected other camels. And then the prophet said, where did the first infection come from? Where is patient zero? Where exactly. is patient zero among the camels? Right, right. And, you know, like these are debates, because if you think about it, people did not know anything about germs. They did not know anything about bacteria or viruses. They yeah. did not know how uh, diseases began. By observation, they could figure out how a disease might spread and how they can deal with the symptoms. Yeah. So the prophet in one saying said there is no contagion where is patient zero and in another saying he said if there's plague in an area don't go there and if you are in it don't leave these sound like contradicting yeah. saying and that's where the debate like it is a heated debate in islamic scholarship oh fascinating mm -hmm. that actually very interesting so there is still an ongoing debate today within among islamic scholars about how to manage contagion and epidemics and all that? I think that debate has been concluded in the sense that we now know how diseases come about. Okay. We know how they spread. 
even plague the disease that shocked people around the world, terrorized people around the world in Europe and in the Middle East. We know how it spreads and we know how to treat it. So I think that that debate has been more or less concluded. Mm-hmm. I, I cannot give a definitive answer to that since I have not been following that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That- Fair enough. But to take you back to where we left off, you were saying that uh, the people of Damascus were very familiar with the idea of a pandemic and, you know, they had, they survived the plague and so on. So then cholera Uh makes an appearance in 1948. And let's hear what happens then. Cholera surprised and shocked people, not because of the novelty, uh, of epidemics or outbreaks or epidemic outbreaks, but because of the horrific symptoms, it was embarrassing for people. You know, like, you know, when someone is infected with the Vibrio cholerae, this is the name of the bacterium that causes the disease, they start defecating and vomiting simultaneously and without warning. It happens so rapidly. And someone who would be standing and walking at 10 o'clock in the morning, probably by 1 p.m., they they would be dead after mm-hmm. going through agony and embarrassment because the body starts losing a lot of its liquid through. Yeah. And then cramps in the body start happening and the pain becomes intolerant and they become dehydrated. And then it can go five hours or two days. Oh, wow. Okay. And if one recovers from it, then this is fine. But if they do not recover, then they are dead within a very short period of time. So so the, the symptoms were what was new for Damascian. It shocked everyone. It, it did not select a, a, an older person over a younger person or a man over woman. However, like it was very random. And that is what shocked people. Wow. So it was, yeah, I can only imagine. So it would be random. And then all of a sudden the person would just start basically vomiting, defecating, whatever. And within hours they're gone. They're dead. Yeah. And you know, you would be in the street. Yeah. Cause it just happens while you're on your way home or exactly know, to buy bread. And then you just have a bout of vomiting and you die. Right, right. And we have actually the first mentioning of the disease by a judge in Damascus. His name is Said Ustwani. And the symptoms must have been so horrific that he actually put it in his diary. Wow. Yeah. Do you remember what it said in the diary? Um, I actually have in front of me a small quote. He says, quote, it happened to people who were thought to die suddenly. No one understood what it was until it became as clear as the sun on Thursday, Ramadan 11th, when people died from it. On Friday, we lost our Imam, Al-Tibi, the yellow wind, that's what they call it, Al-Hawal Asfar, the yellow wind, showed its first signs in Damascus. Whoever this incurable disease hits rarely survives. It is a horror. We ask God to grant us an honorable death. Oh my gosh, I can only imagine the level of fear they must have endured. I mean, we can sort of relate to it with, you know, our own experience with 
the COVID-19 pandemic, before we understood what it was and how it was transmuted and the, you know, level of panic and fear that it set upon all of us. So I can only imagine a disease that was so performative in a way people would, you know, just literally it was just your kind of worst nightmare that a loved one would suddenly start vomiting and losing all these bodily fluids and then collapse and die. Indeed. And, you know, like with COVID now, we look to the scientists and and ask for and we are looking for them to ask for answers to our questions. And when it took a year and we were so impatient, like, really, guys, you did not do research enough on that. But in 1848, they had no idea what it was. And within one day, between 100 to 350 people would die Wow! daily. So they had mass prayers on Fridays for at least 15 days. So you can imagine the horror. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. And this also reminds me of the early days of COVID when there were some mass deaths. Even at, I was in Damascus, actually, for a short while, still during the pandemic or after it. And there were times when there were resurgence of COVID, some, I don't know, Omicron or mm -hmm. some sort of variant. And you would hear of a lot of deaths all of a sudden during three, four weeks. Yeah. And, and you hear the funerals every day, all day, and it's very eerie. It is. It is. I mean, it is really scary. Mm -hmm. It is really scary. And especially if like now we live in bigger cities in 1848, Damascus population probably was 150,000 to 150,000 people. So it was not large. And and, you know, cholera spreads with contaminated water in Damascus received its water from the Barada River. So the river was contaminated. Yeah, it's pretty frightening. And then there were, you mentioned in your research, there were nine pandemics between 1948 and 1912. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah, so cholera came to Damascus in 1848 the first time, and it came again in 65 in 73. In 83, it threatened to come and people were just anxiously waiting for this to start, but it actually did not. So it, it reached Egypt, but it did not come to Damascus. It came again in 1891 and the most influential outbreak was in 1903. And finally, you had during the Ottoman time in 19. 11 and 12. Under the French, even if there were outbreaks, the French covered it up so well. Okay, but before we get to the French, why do you say the sort of the one that sticks out in memory is 1903? Because that is the one that affected strongly the shape of Damascus as we know it now. Oh, how so? That outbreak did not last for a short time. Usually, so the way cholera works it comes, infects people and kills people basically right and left for eight weeks. And then uh -huh. the, the veracity of the agent, the bacterium goes down, people take better precautions and then it dies off. 
So basically, it takes between a month to three months to clear off after killing so many people. Right. And by then, by 1903, the people of Damascus and generally people who had been exposed to cholera knew this, how it sets in, how long it takes, what it does, how it unfolds, all that stuff. They did. They did. By 1902, we learned what causes the disease and we learned how it is transmitted. But nevertheless, the 1902 outbreak, what is special about it is it did not stay only for three months. It took a year. It lasted over a year, crippling the city's economy, killing people and putting the officials on edge because they, despite all measures and all precautions, people were still dying from cholera. And the Ottoman government was scared that cholera might become endemic to Damascus. The, the connection between Damascus and Beirut was blocked, strictly blocked. That means all uh, import-export between the two cities ceased. You know, the two cities were connected very intimately. Mm -hmm. And they've always had a symbiotic relationship. <laughs> they did, both of them. And, you know, wheat merchants started hoarding produce harvest from Damascus could not be exported to the regions around it. So they rotted a high bribery and corruption because at the end of the day, people wanted their business to continue as usual, but they could not because of the sanitary cordons and the uh, measures. So Damascus struggled really strongly. People started to migrate away, especially the, the workers. For a whole year, the city was on edge. Because cholera was unfolding for the entire year? Exactly. They could not. Every time there was a, a, a death or a case reported, they stopped the connection between the two cities. They put sanitary cordon around Damascus. Oh, wow. Blocked the connection with Beirut, blocked the connection with Aleppo. These are vital partners for the city's merchants and also farmers. Yeah. So was that, it, it sounds like it was a different reaction in 1903. Was that basically they were just being more reactive to the disease, to the contagion? They were working harder, trying to figure out, you know, how to put an end to it. Was that why? the repercussions lasted for so long or was it that the outbreak just wouldn't stop? I mean, what was going on that year? The outbreak, it continued flaring up and down. That was the problem. After three months, people thought, oh, okay, we have a whole week. No cases were reported. And then once the week is over, someone died More or another case was reported. And then back again, all the measures that were eased, were reinstated again and the misery started all over again. So the fact that it took a whole year, basically, hide and seek, you know. Yeah. Why did it take so long this time? Probably the bacterium's veracity was strong, probably when a whole week passes by with nothing reported, it's probably because people did not report it. Hmm. Okay. It we see some parallels here. Oh, yeah. COVID. <laughs> it was fascinating researching cholera during the uh, COVID pandemic. It was quite, it's quite fascinating to see similarities and parallels. Indeed. 
Yeah, so you were saying uh, it went on for an entire year. They would close the border. They would reopen the border. They would close it again. There would be another outbreak. And obviously this strained the symbiotic and very crucial relationship between Damascus and Beirut. I mean, right. there's basically an artery that that has always run between them. Exactly. Uh, you know, that the economy of the region, basically it sustained an entire region economically. So, so let's hear more about that. Because the Mauritians could not take it anymore in the city and the government was worried that the disease might become endemic and it also... In the city, you mean in Damascus or both Damascus? Okay. Exactly. And the government, the local Ottoman administration... Exactly. The local Ottoman administration was strained. Also, there were a lot of protests from farmers, from workers, from the merchants themselves, in addition to straining the financial capacity from Istanbul. You know, Damascus did not have enough doctors, did not have enough forces to enforce the sanitary cordons so people would violate quarantine regulations. So Istanbul always had to send doctors from there, had to send forces, but most importantly had to send sanitation machines. All this, how do you call them? Disinfectant. Oh, okay. They were pricey. The Ottomans need to needed to import them from Europe. And the delivery was not always on time. And basically, Istanbul's machines were brought to Damascus to fix the problem. So uh, usually these measures, if they are within a month or two, everybody is trained for a while, but then things calm down and things go back to business as usual. But it took a whole year and everybody was strained. Everybody was at, on edge, the capacities of Istanbul, of Damascus, were just at a level that they could not take it anymore. And that is where the local the local notables, I would say the officials in the city decided, all right, enough is enough. We need a long-term solution. Okay, so now let me stop you there. So, So what do we know about cholera today in terms of how it's transmitted from one person to the other? What, right. how, how does that happen? So cholera is waterborne disease, and the agent for it, the pathogen, is the Vibrio cholerae, or what they call it, the coma bacillus. It's a bacterium that has a coma shape. It lives in the water. It's a bacterium that looks like a comma. I'm going to tell my fellow editors who like the Oxford <laughs> comma. That's it my looks best ammunition <laughs> for um, nerds. Okay, carry on. I love it, that. Carry on. Once there is enough of the bacterium in the water uh, and this water enters human body, either through drinking or through irrigation of produce. Okay, so that's what we know about it. What did they know about it then? By 1902, they knew that, that it was waterborne. Yes. Oh, okay. Interesting. Right. The bacterium was isolated by Robert Koch in 1883. Wow, okay. And the the confirmation that it was waterborne and it is only waterborne that it does not go in the air because at that time the scientist community 
was broken into two camps. One a camp that thinks that it is miasma through the bad air, that if you have a bacterium in the ground, it causes contamination of the air, and then we breathe it, so we, we became uh, infected. Mm-hmm. And the other camp, these are anti-contagionist supporters, and the contagionist supporters, they they thought that well, the bacterium is there, it is in the water, when we drink the water, we are infected. Okay. So, so by 1902, this knowledge was established and governments around the world were investing in better sewage infrastructure, better sanitary water infrastructure. And in uh, Damascus, the local government and the central government in Istanbul decided that, okay, we need to undertake a water project that facilitates the arrival of clean and sanitary water for Damascians that cannot be contaminated. They went to the Fiji Spring, which is in the village of Ain al-Fiji, 17 kilometers away from Damascus. Which and continues to provide water to the city to this day. Yep. Exactly. Carry on. Mm-hmm. So this, the establishment of the first Fiji water project was initiated during the epidemic in Damascus, and it was inaugurated in 1908. And yeah, so actually, one of the major contributions that I make is that Damascus is drinking safe water now, because at some point, the city suffered from a very prolonged cholera epidemic that got everybody sick and tired of the disease and of all the economic and political disturbances it caused. Wow, fascinating. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to those disturbances. We were we were in the year 1903, I think, you were saying, and how for an entire year, cholera kept closing down the road between Damascus and Beirut, which even when that happens nowadays becomes problematic. You know, and now we have airplanes and we have all sorts of other modes of communication and transportation, and it still becomes problematic for you know, for everybody. So I can only imagine back then. So yeah, how did that also start to shape or reshape the relationship between the two cities? As you said, Russia, the two cities are so interconnected, not only commercially, but also socially. Damascian merchant and commercial, basically, class, they sent their children to live in probably most probably sons to live in Beirut to have a branch of their businesses there you know mm-hmm. so the connections were not only a merchant in Damascus sending sending their goods to Beirut to be shipped to the right. rest but actually they had family relationships of course so in addition to that Damascus classes they had their summer houses in Mount Lebanon and every time cholera hit Damascus, these influential rich people would pack their stuff and head to their summer houses in the mountain, high up, fresh air, far away from the city. And there was at that time, there was the belief that cholera does not reach elevated places. Uh So those who could afford it 
always bought summer houses in. That's funny. That reminds me of the New Yorkers, the affluent New Yorkers who basically left New York City at the onset of the corona. <laughs> it is exactly the yeah. same. Yeah, yeah it no, it's amazing. It is those who can afford are the ones who uh, who run away, basically, and those who cannot, they just have to stay. They have nowhere else to go. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine how the interruption of communication and transportation between the two cities disturbed economic, but also social relationship. And for context today, to go between Damascus and Beirut, it's about two hours, you know, without traffic or checkpoints. It's two hours door to door. So it, they're very close geographically. Right. And at that time, by 1902, we had a very active train. train. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yep. In addition to the mules and mm -hmm. the carts and the old roads. and carriage, yep. Yeah. Okay. So the connection was very strong. And and the the debate about the sanitary cordons and the separation between the two cities was hotly debated in the press, right? The Lebanese did not want to have Damascene coming to their city and infecting their city. Mm -hmm. His cholera the, was moving from the east. Right. Yeah. It was the, moving west from the east. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is what is fascinating about the case of Damascus. And I will come to that uh, later. Hope okay. we get to, to discuss that. But for now, most of the time, it was Be Damascus that infected Beirut and not Beirut Damascus, mm -hmm. which is atypical for cholera. So Beirutis, merchants, intellectuals, whoever could write in the press, made it very clear that Beirutis should not be hospitable to Damascians. <laughs> Damascians and their cholera. The Stay away from Beirut. Okay. Exactly. And you start hearing of very strict barriers where people could even be shot if they try to violate the strict sanitary cordon measures. Wow. Exactly. Right. So things became really sensitive and serious. And the Damascian reporters and Damascian merchants said, okay, well, we also need to live and our businesses are in Beirut. So by 1902, the tension became stronger between the two cities. And that's where Damascian said, okay, well, we will do something. If, if you guys in Beirut think that your city is, uh, is hygienic. Oh, high and mighty, right. All hygienic and high and mighty. Okay. I mean, indeed, I have to say that Beirut stopped receiving cholera since or between 1873 because or 75 i meant 1875 because they had a water system oh okay. the and the french two Eng an english company and the french company set up a water company in beirut so they were ahead of damascus by 30 years uh-huh they brought their water from the Kelb River, which is now really insignificant. But at some point, that was basically oh, the water river. Yeah. Yeah. And so Beirut were proud and Beirutis were proud that their city did not have cholera for so long. And they saw the threat coming from Damascus. Yeah. And 
was that around the time you know that the water system was set up in beirut was it around the time that there was also an understanding of the bacterium and how cholera was transmitted or was it Before. unrelated to that it was related it, okay it was unrelated to that people started suspecting that water might be involved maybe you've heard of the soho uh, water pump in london no so there is this very important incident in the history of London, actually, and, and cholera in the UK. When in 1856 or 58, uh, cholera attacked London and uh, uh, John Snow, uh, who was a physician at that time, he mapped the city and mapped cholera cases and found that actually all cases um, uh, are um, go down basically to that particular water pump in the Soho area. Okay. When he asked the government to shut down that water pump, the disease cooled off. Wow. Okay. Right. So there were suspicions. They weren't, yeah, they weren't clear exactly what was going on, but they kind of picked up on suspicions that it was waterborne. Right, right. So it was Jon Snow said that water is is the major suspect but he could not explain to his colleague scientist how because if he said there is an invisible animal in the water it was okay, but, but <laughs> i would think he was crazy yeah i mean they thought well it might it must be diluted when it is like even yeah. if it will be diluted in the water so it will not have the same uh, effect so he suspected he could not have the uh, the reasoning so he was not taken seriously but mm. people started thinking about the possibility of connection between water and infectious diseases like cholera and typhoid actually mm. so in beirut in beirut the establishment of a water company was not related to disease but it was celebrated in for its potential preventive uh, preventative uh, effect mm. okay but so it was, it was understood as a hygienic step forward it was understood it was mainly there to benefit the western european uh, residents in the city in beirut i mean beirut's history is very fascinating and it's not the subject of our discussion here but the fact that there was a sizable community of europeans resident and Americans also resident in Beirut shaped a lot of the city's infrastructure. One of it, one of it is the water company. Oh, fascinating. Mm -hmm. Okay, but then, you know, why didn't the authorities in Damascus also sort of heed some warning from that, or at least want to emulate what was the water system that was being built in Beirut? You know, it's a very expensive enterprise. Mm. In Beirut, the Ottoman government itself was unable to to support the project. That's why they give it as a concession to the French and British company. And mm. the two companies were also in competition. But uh, it was a very expensive, it was a very expensive uh, uh, project. And in Damascus, it cost them a fortune, basically. And it caused a lot of diplomatic tension, actually, to have the Fiji water project in Damascus going on. 
because the government was forced to fund it through taxes on gasoline, the European commodity that was imported into Damascus. So that means you are taxing a European commodity, which is against the commercial treaties that the Ottoman Empire was suffering from. So it caused a lot of tension with the Americans and with the Russians. If you go to the archives in College Park, the University of Maryland near Washington, D.C., and you read the correspondence between the consul in Damascus and the ambassador in Istanbul, I'm speaking about the American consul and the American ambassador, there was a huge tension over the fact that the Ottoman governor in Damascus was taxing American oil. Wow, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so the so in Damascus, there there was the idea that they wanted some sort of reliable, hygienic water system, like in Beirut. Exactly. But, but they didn't have the French and the British willing to bankroll that like they were in Beirut. Well, they did not want to. They didn't want to. They weren't interested. The Mastians, uh, I'm sorry. The Mastians were very. The Mastians are not were not very friendly to European economic encroachment into their city. Right. So they didn't. So the European, the French, and the British didn't have the same presence in Damascus mm-hmm. that they did in Beirut. So they didn't even have the, you know, the interest really to cater the city to their own citizens like they did in Beirut, where they had a lot of French and British and American and Westerners. So so there was more of a reasoning to develop this water system. And then, but then there was also pressure on the local Ottoman authorities in Damascus to do something about the water. Mm-hmm. And the Ottoman authorities didn't know where to find the money to finance that, except to tax these foreign imports, which upset the diplomatic relationships exactly. with, with various Western countries. Yeah, that's pretty complicated geopolitics already over water. Isn't that interesting? I mean, the region, the re- everything in the region seems to revolve o- around water one way or, or the other. Yeah. And, you know, the Ottomans fell into this predicament of showing themselves as modern. And, of course, showing themselves as modern in the eyes of Europeans, right? At the same time, they could not get Europeans to support their efforts to become modern. So for the city to be able to have a modernized water infrastructure that benefited everybody, including foreign residents, they got fierce position um, uh, by the Russians and the Americans. The Russians would say, well, we understand that the health of the city is very important, but it is not the fault of our merchants. (laughs) (laughs) It is fascinating, the correspondence between between the governors in the city and the the Russians, specifically the Russian representative uh, in Damascus, uh, were just fascinating. Wow. Before we continue on this road to the, you know, the complexity of the geopolitics surrounding the water and the cholera, I just want to go back to the point you made about 
how it's fascinating that color was moving from the east to the west and how that was unusual. You wanted to explore that point further. So please go ahead. Thank you. You know, if you open history books uh, on the history of cholera uh, in Europe or in the US or in Russia or even in Asia, you will find the titles of their the books re um, related to maritime cities, port cities, right? Whether on rivers or uh, on seas or oceans. You had cholera in New York, here in New Orleans, for example through the Mississippi River, then in Marseille, in London, in Hamburg, in Germany, Alexandria, Istanbul, even in, in the Arabian Peninsula, all these cities are actually maritime cities. Uh, also in Russia, by the way, cities that are located on rivers were majorly uh, were, were hit. So in the historiography around cholera, cholera has been identified and portrayed as a maritime disease that targets port cities. But Damascus is not. It is not located on a, a river. It is, of course, located on the Barada River, but Barada does not cater uh, to ships. It's a small mm. river. So the case of Damascus defies this Western-centric and basically maritime skewed narrative that cholera goes from maritime cities to interior. Because in the case of Damascus, the cholera arrived from the desert, from Aleppo, from Mesopotamia, and Baghdad, Basra, those Mesopotamian cities, yeah. and moved to Beirut. So that is fascinating. And that puts the city, which is an interior in the hinterland, on a global scale, right? It shared global experience of suffering and also public health measures. Fascinating. Was it looked at in this way back then? Were people perplexed as to why Damascus was being so afflicted by cholera, even though it is not a maritime city? Or did they not have that big picture? People were concerned about the movement of the disease. Mm. Uh, Damascus was was very well connected to Mesopotamia and to the interior in general. It is also strongly connected with the Arabian Peninsula, Saudi Arabia, right? The, through the Hajj route. Through trade, through pilgrimage. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And... and Later, when the uh, when the Hijaz railway was established, mm -hmm. which this, went from Damascus through Palestine, Jordan, all the way to the Arabian Peninsula, exactly the coast of the Arabian Peninsula, right. So yeah. it was basically a hub. It became a hub. It it was a hub before eighteen sixty five sixty eight, mm -hmm. and then. After the opening of the Hijaz Railway, it returned to become a hub for pilgrims coming from the east and the north, Muslim pilgrims coming from the east and the north. So it was quite fascinating that Beirut, which is the maritime city, was not infected as much as Damascus. Yeah, fascinating. So now this brings us up to the French Mandate era, colonial times after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. 
So let's talk about the geopolitics at that time, how they might have been affected by, you know, the whole conversation about water and hygiene or vice versa. How did geopolitics affect the the public conversation about hygiene? What was going on there? So, you know, the French, when they imposed their mandate on the Syrians, first of all, I think this is a, a historical knowledge now that the Syrians did not want the French mandate. When they thought that when they thought that they had a say after yeah. World War on about who is going to take care of them, because according to Western knowledge, they are not able to rule themselves. Uh-huh. They asked either for the British or for the Americans. Actually, they wanted the Americans to be a mandate power, but they explicitly rejected French yeah. uh, man- mandate system. But then they got the French and the French, whenever there was a, an epidemic like this, they were very eager to cover it up. And and you could see that from the correspondence of the American consul uh, between Damascus, Beirut, and Washington, D.C., because the consul's job was basically to sit down and uh, give an idea about the health of the city of Damascus. And they had hard time getting the information about cholera cases. So... Wow or the numbers would be reduced. So the French were not eager to show that they, the super advanced uh, power, are having similar issues like the Ottoman before them. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So there were a lot of public health crises that were being covered up. They would be either covered up or would be undermined or their significance would be reduced publicly. And Of course, there are a lot of things going on. First of all, a a vaccine against cholera was developed. Second, the French thought they would have better control over the borders between Syria and what is now Iraq, which was a British mandate region. And the Fiji Water Project, the first one, helped reduce the amount of outbreak a lot. And then the city experienced the second water project during the early days of the French mandate, and which also mitigated the severity of cholera outbreaks. Not to mention that the city urban planning was developing, that people moved outside the old city and the new areas outside the wall became developed and new hygienic houses, like building, Western style building, were uh, were being erected and they were directly connected to the new Fiji, the second Fiji project that was initiated in 1922 and inaugurated in 1931. So, so there was a combination of multiple factors, but the French were keen on covering up. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned in your research also the, you know, the motto that we keep hearing today, even when people say, why did the West progress and we regress? (laughs) Fill in the blank, we being the Arab world, the Muslim world, whatever. But the West progressed and we regressed. What is that about? How is that related even to water politics and cholera and all that stuff? You know, that debate, 
a debate about why the regions, the Arab regions, basically, especially Egypt and the Levant, had recurring cholera outbreaks and was quite prevalent in in the press among Arab intellectuals, right? And people started to look inwards, asking themselves why that is the case. Of course, there are structural structural elements in terms of infrastructure, but people, but intellectuals were looking at people's social behavior. The idea of hygiene started to become uh, more debated and more discussed in the news. Magazines and newspapers, especially Al-Manar and Al-Hilal, debating why, what are we doing wrong that we are unable to stop the disease. And they began to think about social practices, for example, cleanliness, hugs and kisses, um, even attitude like spitting in the street became discussed in a scientific, modern way as a sign of the backwardness of the Middle Eastern society or the Oriental society. Mm -hmm. And those intellectuals um, who were engaged in that debate began to give recommendations as how to behave in a modern, hygienic way. Right. And they were eager to connect that to Islamic traditions. Like a lot of the intellectuals would say, we need to go back to Islamic practices. We need to go back to who we really are. We Muslims are clean because cholera is associated with filth and unclean um, conditions and unhygienic conditions. So they therefore, if only we adhere to religious practice to proper religious practices we would prevent cholera be because we would be more sanitary and so on and so forth that's exactly. the thinking exactly you also you i mean you hear this rationale even today unfortunately people for example still litter in much of the middle east you know they'll still litter and they think nothing of it and the you know the police isn't gonna go after you and ask and fine you, which I don't understand why they don't do that because it would be a great source of revenue, but that's another story. But, you know, and then, and yet people say, yeah, we have our Islamic tradition and it's about cleanliness and so on and so forth. So it just seems that the same conversation continues and it hasn't really changed or has it? No, it hasn't. And it is really related to class structure in the city. Those people who are debating and who are uh, demanding the population to go back to Islamic practices and to become hygienic and clean. Unquote. Mm -hmm. Right. They are, they are upper class people who can afford living in a hygienic environment mm -hmm. and they can afford to have proper food that is not 10 days old, for mm -hmm. example that is not irrigated with contaminated water, they can maintain basically hygienic conditions while the lower classes, those who do not have the means to live in in hygienic uh, uh, environment or... Where the local municipality also 
is it a great failure not providing the most sanitary conditions for a lot of the provincial areas and so on? I mean, yeah, the the, the authorities have a big chunk of the blame. And oh, of course, but you see, these are, things are related to class. So, just mm-hmm. to give you a small example, mm-hmm. which neighborhood are were cleaned? The, the who work in the municipalities are basically the elite in Damascus, mm-hmm. and you would see the clean areas are around their uh, houses, while those who live in the outskirts of Damascus do not get the same attention. So it is it is very much related to political and class structure uh, uh, in the city. And those who keep calling on the public to go back to Islamic practices, they basically are targeting rural areas for whom, for them, do not adhere to Islamic Islamic traditions. Okay, so then what would you say are some of the lessons learned from these experiences? (laughs) I mean, loaded question. That is a very loaded question. There is and there is no straight answer to it. You know, we one thing we know is that crisis like disease, epidemic diseases and, uh, and infectious diseases, one of the thing we see repeatedly is that they highlight social issues, injustices in in any area. That is the time when when the injustices, inequalities in any societies come to the surface. Especially in a disease like cholera, it is a class bound disease. It is actually the disease of the poor. Those who cannot, those who cannot afford to live in a clean way, are the ones who are attacked. And those who are wealthy, they can just leave the city if the disease is uh, everywhere around them. So we can, during the time of cholera and during the time of COVID, we see where the government and the society is failing to include all segments of the society into the well into being in good conditions you know the well-being of the population or the standards that are kept uh, become basically uncovered during during disease i don't know if i'm making sense now but um like for example during covid we noticed that certain minorities were more targeted by COVID than others. We see who died the most. The same with cholera. These things do not change. During the time of a crisis like this, we learn whether the government is doing well, uh, whether people have solidarity with each other, whether public health uh, measures cover everybody equally, whether everybody has at least, if not uh, the same standards, but at least adequate enough to shun away the disease. So I think I would say it will help us look introvertly and think, are we doing a good job? Big questions about public health policy back then and now over there and here. It is very political. It is very political. It is 
it's embedded in politics. So whoever say that medicine and disease are neutral, they don't know. <laughs> Dr. Binan Grams, thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you, Rasha. You've been listening to The Lead. 